Welcome back to Supreme Myths. We've been on a little bit of break due to health reasons and some other things, but we are back. And I am so excited today to have as my guest, my friend, um, a distinguished professor of law at the University of Georgia who has a chair name I can't read because it's too long. Um, but she is uh, quite simply, I think, our nation's leading or one of two or three leading experts on the confirmation process um, for Supreme Court justices, but she does a lot more than that. She has a JD from Wisconsin, a BCL from Oxford. Uh, her first book, co-written Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change, and I am very interested in constitutional change, so we'll talk about that. And an upcoming book coming out just uh, soon called Supreme Bias, Gender and Race in U.S. Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings. Um, both books are, need to be read. Uh, Lori, thank you so much for being here. It is my pleasure. I'm happy to do this. Um, I'm really excited. Okay. So first of all, and I usually ask my guests this at the beginning, if they have a certain specialty, and I'm not at all limiting you to the confirmation process. I love all of your work. It's incredibly thoughtful. Um, but we're here to talk about mostly the confirmation process. So how did you get interested in that? When did it become kind of a passion for, for you? Yeah. You know, it's a, a lot of stars aligned um, just at the right time um, for, for me to kind of in, uh, jump on this as the thing I was going to do. So so I started my academic career in kind of the mid early two, 2000. So like 2003. Um, and, you know, you're kind of mucking around looking for something to to plant your feet in, looking for an area where you can really develop some expertise um, and, and and develop your, your body of work. And it was such an interesting time in confirmations, um, in kind of the confirmation story, because it was the very end of what, what political scientists will call the Rehnquist natural court. A natural court is when the same set of justices sit together for an uninterrupted period of time. And the Rehnquist Natural Court in 2005 had been sitting together for 11 years. So for 11 years, there had not been a new justice or, and therefore had not been a confirmation hearing. That sounds extraordinary for us today where they're, they're rolling around just about every summer. But it had been 11 years since we'd had one of these. And then suddenly they started happening with great rapidity. Um, so it was really interesting and to you start thinking about confirmation hearings again because they were in some sense kind of new and novel. Um, so that was that was that was one thing that that caught my attention and got me and a lot of other people interested in this. The other thing, as you mentioned, I did a law degree at the University of Oxford in England. Um, and Britain, of course, has a constitutional regime that's very different from ours um, in in multitudes of ways. They have an unwritten constitution. They don't have um, a real strong form of judicial review like you do. And studying in that program and studying public law, which is like um, a small c constitutional law, cover studying public law with a group of very tell the people smart what you mean by small. Law. Sorry, Lori, small c constitutional law. What do you mean by that? Yeah, sorry, sure. Uh, so small c constitutional law is like the law of governance and distribution of power, yeah. right? We well, we think of public law as broadly differentiated from private law. Private law is like contracts, right? It's, right. it's your interactions with other people. Public law is the law between people and government. One of the reasons I wanted to just interrupt you for a second was uh, Richard yeah. Albert did this podcast last, he was the last person yeah. to do it. And Richard talks about small c constitutional law all over the world, you know, and, and it was a fascinating yeah. interview, but go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah. well, and he, he's, he's one, of, one of our great um, comparativists. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I was I was sitting over in Oxford, and I'm in this classroom, and I'm the only American in the classroom, and they all think we're a little, you know, <laughs> kind of out there in how we do this stuff. We are, but for me, <laughs> you know, for me it really um, 
it broadens your perspective to realize that the way you're accustomed to doing things is not the only way that they can be done. Um, and so that was really interesting to me in thinking about a way into constitutional law and, and the Supreme Court in particular. Um, and then the last thing that, that was kind of in this constellation of events, um, I, I don't have a, a deeply theoretical background. And as you know, a lot of constitutional scholarship is pretty high abstract theory. Um, it, it's, it's all kind of about uh, political philosophy and ideas, the counter-majoritarian difficulty. It's this, it's this um, uh, way of writing and being that's not really grounded in, in, in empirical reality very much. Um, and I, I got interested in some work, Barry Friedman in particular was a mentor of mine, and some of the work that he was doing with the counter-majoritarian You mean his 14 law review articles on that subject? It's something like that, yeah. <laughs> and the really big fat book. Yes. Um, and, and, and just kind of thinking about, you know, what what really happening as opposed to what we're kind of theorizing might be happening or should be happening. Um, and the confirmations were a way into that because they're an actual concrete thing that's very influential on how our constitution actually works in the real world. So I wanted to look at that. So I, that's fascinating. And, and we're going to get all about confirmations in about a minute. But before we do, um, I love your observation, uh, Lori. So I, as you know, and as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, I've been fighting the originalists now for years and years and years. Um, but it's one thing to fight kind of the old style originalists who might actually have a foot on the ground. But the new style originalist friends of mine, people like Steve Sachs and Wilbode, who I like and we're friends, and I, but they're so theoretical and so removed. And I, I've told, I'm not saying anything in this podcast. I haven't told them to their face. In fact, one of the best articles I wrote about them, I think, was originalism off the ground <laughs> was one and grounding originalism was another one. Um, you are, and, and the reason I bring all of that up is simply to say, um, I do view you um, and you're uh, as someone who can talk theoretically, and I've heard you do it at very high level, but- I love the fact that you keep one foot in the ground, at least one foot yeah. on the ground. And, and yeah. too few of us do that, to be honest, um, and especially in con law. So I'm happy that's what generated your interest in this. And of course, Barry and I go way, way back. Um, when I was a second year law professor or so, he came into my class un unannounced, my federal courts class. He was here speaking and uh, I knew who he was and everything. And he, he walks in without yeah. any warning and asks a question. Which is very barren. Very he, very much, and he, he's he's such a generous senior scholar. Yes, he, he, yes. You always uh, aspire yes. to be that person in your own career. Yes, we he and I go way back. Anyway, okay. So you start thinking about the confirmation hearings, and I think you've told me before you read you have read every word of every transcript of every Supreme Court confirmation hearing since nineteen forty something. Nineteen thirty nine. I highly recommend this. It's actually really, really <laughs> fun. <laughs> it is. So, so yes, I may be the only person. Yes. I don't even. I don't even think my co-author has done this because he didn't do a lot of the coding in the data set that I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit here. But so I might be the only person who's done this. Other than um, there is the keeper of the archive at the Senate Judiciary Committee who right. they have as well. Right. Um, well, but, I, wanna, I just want to set the table yeah. for the rest of this podcast, people. This is someone who's read every word since 1939. So this is someone who knows what they're talking about. Before we get to the present, um, the first televised confirmation hearing was Justice O'Connor's. Is that right? Correct. Yep. When she was here, after she retired, she was here twice, once before she retired and then after she retired. And the year, and when she came after she retired, 
she said a lot of things that she didn't say the first time around. And one of them was she thought that broke the confirmation process, the, the TV part of it. Everybody thinks something broke the confirmation process. <laughs> and and I, 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 my, my position, which I will defend yes. and support throughout this podcast, yes. is um, it, it, it's, it hasn't changed as much as we think it's changed. So if it's broken, it, it's like, what was, what was it looking like on broken? Right. Um, so right. <laughs> I want to go back to 1939 for just yes. a second now, yes. because it, it's an interesting story, I think, about how these confirmation processes even came to look the way that they do today. Please do. Um, yeah. So, so 1939 was the year, the confirmation um, of Felix Frankfurter, right? And he was one of Roosevelt's nominees, and he um, he came to the process um, at after the Hugo Black nomination. That had been the other most recent one. And Hugo Black, as some of your listeners might know, he was a sitting senator from Alabama, um, and he had at one point in his youth, he had accepted and apparently never rescinded a lifetime membership in the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Um, and the the senators um, probably knew this uh, and didn't vet this publicly in any way. As a sitting senator, he kind of got um, a rapid, very senatorial courtesy filled appointment or, or confirmation process. And he went through this process very rapidly and that issue was never publicly raised. And when people found out about it, which they did shortly, like just within like weeks of when the confirmation had been, the appointment had gone through, um, it was incredibly controversial. A journalist dug into this. He won a Pulitzer Prize for this story. This was a very, very big deal. So there was a, a, there was a lawsuit. Sorry, of, there was a lawsuit about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of public sentiment and support and kind of, um, you know, thinking about was this the right way to do this? And the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the ABA um, agreed that next time they would do it differently. Um, so next time was Felix Frankfurter. And one of the ways that they did it differently was they held this open question and answer session in public. Now, nominees had testified um, on particular issues before, like very narrow things that the senators wanted them to give answers about. Um, but but Felix Frankfurter was the first one who sat under oath and took unrestricted questions in public. So is it a myth? So I guess I, I had this myth in my head that, and I guess it's a myth, and I love busting myths, so this is awesome. I thought that his was the first open hearing because he was Jewish and people, there was some anti-Semitism going on. So, so the open hearing was a thing that they, um, that the Judiciary Committee had committed to before, after, between Black and Frankfurter. Um, the testimony from Frankfurter, the fact that he himself came to testify, um, was not something that had been decided in advance, okay. whether he was going to testify or not. And what happened in the public hearing that was happening without the nominee present at that point, um, there was a lot of very, very hostile, very overt animosity um, to him uh, based in his Jewishness. Okay. Um, and he wasn't the first Jewish nominee to have been um, not put on the court or named uh, named to the court. Um, but he, he was he, he immigrated to the United States when he was 11. He came here. He didn't speak English. He was of a he would and it was between the wars so this was not a great time to be jewish in america and, yeah. and one of the reasons that he um along with the president decided that he should actually come and testify himself in this in this public process was because of that okay good. Some of so i wasn't wrong so i wasn't wrong okay good <laughs> you were only a little wrong yeah 
I think a little wrong is pretty good for me. Okay. Um, so let's skip ahead and we get to Justice O'Connor and she, you know, Reagan fulfills the campaign promise and she goes through. The evangelicals go nuts, but nevertheless, she, she gets in. Um, and then Scalia gets in 99 to 0 or 99 to 1, 99 to 0, I think. Something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to Bork. Now, let me set the stage for you to take it. Um, Scalia got a seat when there was a Republican Senate and he was, and he was just taking another concern. There was no change of power mm-hmm. with Scalia. Mm-hmm. Um, Justice Powell then resigns and Justice Powell is the swing vote on the court. And Reagan nominates Bork. Um, Posner, I have to mention Judge Posner once a podcast. This is my one time. Um, he has told me that, that Scalia and Bork were trying to outflank each other on the right to get the first one. <laughs> um, I think our world history would be different if Bork had gotten the first and Scalia the second. But anyway, leaving that aside, because Bork would have got it. And I don't think Scalia would have. But anyway, so now we get to Bork. And of course, Bork gets defeated. Um, and I think you think that there are a lot of myths about that Bork confirmation process. So why don't you bust some of those myths? <laughs> yeah, so everyone has their favorite version of Bork changed the world story, yes. right? Yeah. Um, Bork didn't change the world. So, so and, and I think there, there's um, multiple myths surrounding that nomination. Um, and, and so to start where you did, um, one is I think that this used to be a very um, cordial process, and there was a great deal of deference to the Senate, to the president's choice, and nominees just kind of sailed through. I mean, there is nothing true about that story <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> the, 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 we've actually, historically, the Senate has rejected rejected more presidential nominees in the first half of our history than they have in the last most recent half of our history. Pause on that. Pause on that note because I love that. I know. I know you've, you've told me that before, and I, you know, and I, and I raise it a lot. I cite you mm-hmm. every time I do because just real quick, because it's my view that what happened last term, Dobbs, mm-hmm. Bruin, that's two years really. And these huge mm-hmm. cases, I'm not suggesting these aren't world changing, important events. We had them in 1870. We had them in 1800. I mean, the Congress, for God's sake, told the Supreme Court, go home for a year. My point is, and you're corroborating it, we've had these battles over the court forever. This is not a 2022 thing. If, if you have law students listening, they have obviously um, certainly studied Marbury versus Madison, right. which part of what was going on in that case was the Midnight Ju- Judges Act, right. when the outgoing Federalists, after just having you know their 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 hair handed to them in an election, lost power. They were in lame duck section um, session, and they stacked the courts. They created a whole bunch of new judicial appointments, um, and Tom and and they also declined or. May, they reduced the size of the Supreme Court so the incoming uh, President Jefferson wouldn't have a seat to fill when the next vacancy arose. Right. Then Jefferson comes in and he immediately unwinds that. And it goes, <laughs> I mean, it's just this, this the, the presidents and senators have always known that who sits on the Supreme Court matters, and they have always behaved. Um, with that now, with that understanding that who sits on the Supreme Court matters. And people who listen to this podcast know I love talking about President Grant packing the court with literally, yeah. literally packing the court with two judges who he knew were going to overturn the legal tender cases. And that's 1870. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt, but just. No, no, no. I think that that's, I mean, because it, it, it is, it's good kind of um, historical anecdotes yes. about how this process, yes. you know, th- this has always mattered. And the other thing that I, I would draw out of your comment, um, the court has always been, it's not just that the senators and presidents have known it matters who sits on the court. The court has always 
I shouldn't say always, it is intermittently, but throughout history at different points in time, um, been involved in the hot controversial issues of the day. Right. So, so whether it was the Legal Tender Act, whether it was, you know, Dred Scott in the lead up to the Civil War, whether it was um, uh, the, the, the McCulloch v. Maryland and the relationship of, of between states and federal regulatory power, what, whatever the big issues were, the Supreme Court's been right in the middle of it. You know, what has changed, of course, is that the empowered and informed electorate is more diverse and has a different array of interests than perhaps the informed and empowered electorate um, could act on in 1789. Um, so, so, so we have different issues, but the hot issues are the court's issues, and that's also not new. Um, so I think uh, the, the, the notion that this used to be kind of a let's just hang out and sing right. Kumbaya and talk about the nominees kind of, um, kind of uh, you know, technical or formal qualifications and nothing else, we've never had that system. That's right. not what our system has ever looked like. So that's one of the myths. Um, I think another one of the myths that, that's real popular is that um, Bork failed, re was rejected because he answered questions. And after since Bork, nobody has answered questions. Um, that's also not true. This is the great thing about data. It just it is what it is. <laughs> Wait, you mean, you mean facts matter? Wait a minute. You must not live. What, what, country, what, country, are you, what country are you living in, Lori? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so uh, we, one of the one of the things that my co-author and I have done is we coded responsiveness of nominees, um, and the responsiveness trend line is is pretty flat, um, and it doesn't change before or after Bark, um, Bork, excuse me. Um, so, so Bork answered questions. Um, he answered slightly above average number of questions, um, but but not 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 kind of beyond the pale um he he was pretty much in 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 the bell curve in terms of of the questions that he gave affirmative responses to so the problem with bork wasn't that he answered questions it, it was it was that he gave the wrong answers and i mean that in a very particular sense you know this was 1987 um I, and i think what what's happened what, what that era kind of looks like in a snapshot is in terms of the supreme court and public discourse um the rhetoric of being against the activism of the Warren Court era, the, the activist Warren Court, um, was still um, winning rhetoric. Uh, it, 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 people, lots of people, not, um, you know, people who are um, uh, kind of a big tent of, for a big tent of reasons. Um, it's still winning railed, rhetoric, sorry. Railed against the Warren Court activism. Um, and uh, Bork kind of leaned into that, and Ronald Reagan leaned, in, leaned into that. But one thing that I think they didn't realize until after Bork, this is a lesson learned from Bork, was that while being against the activism of the Warren Court was rhetorically popular, the actual decisions issued by the court had been broadly accepted by the American people. Right. Uh, so, and the Bork hearing really revealed that. What the Bork hearing showed was um, things, I mean, the, the things he said uh, were, I think, maybe striking um, to, to readers' ears today. He said the First Amendment only protects political speech, not art, for example, just the biggest example. It only protects political speech. He said gender discrimination wasn't subject to any type of heightened review under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. He cast doubt on whether um, Congress had power to enact the Civil Rights Act. And he rejected he rejected any um, constitutional fundamental right to privacy. And this, this wasn't like a proxy conversation about Roe. They had that conversation as well. Right. Um, but any 
um, constitutionally protected right to, to live your life without some sort of governmental interference unless the government has a really good reason to interfere. Um, he, he just rejected that. He said it's just not in there. He called the Ninth Amendment that, um, you know, kind of holds rights reserved to people and the states and ink blocked on the Constitution. You know, it turns out that those answers were no longer in um, the, the realm of answers that Americans thought were constitutionally acceptable. Um, and Justice Kennedy, this is just becomes the Kennedy seat, right? Justice well, hold Kennedy on, hold on. It does. But, but hold on, though. I mean, it only becomes the Kennedy seat because just Judge Ginsburg smoked pot with law students. I don't think smoking pot with law students is a good idea, so I'm actually okay with that. No, 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 no. But Laura, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm making actually a serious point. Um, okay. Now, I'm, the serious point I'm making is if Ginsburg, Judge Ginsburg, not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for those listening, but yep. if Judge Ginsburg had not, he was incredibly conservative and would likely have gone the same way as Bork in 98% of constitutional cases. If he doesn't smoke pot with law schools, we don't get Justice Kennedy. We don't get Casey. We don't get a lot of things. We don't. We don't. We definitely don't get Obergefell and and um, uh, Windsor, um, and that's just luck. I mean that. I mean really. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back okay. on that a little bit. Okay. Um, so 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 first of all, we don't know if D Judge Ginsburg would have been confirmed. As you, he may have been. Um, he may have fallen into the same answers that Bork did, and he also had a, a paper trail. Um, so it would have been hard for him to some extent to avoid some of those issues uh, or to avoid his position on some of those issues. Um, and, and secondly, I don't think you can say if that seat had been filled by a Bork or a, a, a Judge Ginsburg, then, then nothing else would have changed and history would have played out kind of the same way, but for that one thing. So all the, we wouldn't have all these cases that Kennedy was in. We don't know. We don't, I, I suspect had that happened, the nominations from, um, Democratic presidents would have looked differently. Strategic tight retirements might have been timed differently. I, and I, I don't have kind of details at the top of my head of that, but I think there's always a danger in saying, in changing one thing and assuming all else remains the same. Well, I, I don't, you, I don't know that I'd buy that. So I think you're, I think that's, I want to fight a little bit about this. I, you're right. I, I think you're, the way you're looking at it is accurate. I don't, I'm not arguing with that. I was yeah. at DOJ beginning in 1988. Um, I knew a lot of people who knew the players here. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, I think they had an expectation that Ginsburg was more polished than Bork in that sense. Um, which, which leads, which, which I get, but I, I do want to say that if Bork or Ginsburg gets it, the Bush administration was committed to overturning Roe and they were going to get that overturned and it would have been overturned unless one of them had changed their minds, which is highly unlikely. Casey, Casey is five years later or four years later, I think does come out differently. And then you're right. That snowball could change all of world history. So who knows? Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. I no, I want to go back to Justice Kennedy okay. and finish the, the yeah. small point I wanted to make Sorry. about him and Bork myths. No, that's okay. So, so the, the I think one of the things we forget in the um, everything became very um, controversial and, and votes became a lot tighter after Bork. Um, Kennedy was confirmed without objection from a without. Um, I think he was confirmed without a negative vote. I'm not 100% sure of that, but if he had a negative vote, it was one or two. Yeah. And this was from a Democratic Senate. Um, a, a Senate in which the Democrats held the majority. So this notion that, I mean, people always love to say Scalia was um, um, confirmed 99 to zero. So was Kennedy, right? They bracketed Bork. Right, so, right, right. So right. Bork also did not change the world on that. Okay, so now let me ask you this. And I've, I have actually wanted to ask you this question as long as I've known you, which is what, like 15 years or something? I don't know. I've been wanting to ask you this question for so long. 
I'm surprised you waited. So I long. know. Well, you I'm know, long, we, we, we always have so much to talk about. We never get to it. Um, Lori, if Bork had said, mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to comment on the right to privacy because there are cases like that that might come up. I am not going to comment on my views on free speech um, other than in very broad terms because there are cases that might come up. I was an academic once. I wrote an article once. Um, you know, we're going to get to Kagan in a second, and I can't wait. But, of course, Kagan walked back an entire law review article in the first one minute of her confirmation hearing. Uh, and Sotomayor walked back an entire speech she gave in the first five minutes of her, conf- I think, in the first of her confirmation hearing. So if Bork had simply said, you know what, I've been an academic my whole life. I became a judge a few years ago. Um, I, I, my job as an academic was to stir the pot. That's what I did. Um, but I'm not going to comment on cases that could come before me. Mm-hmm. Does it get mm-hmm. confirmed? So, so I don't know, but I don't know for a particular reason <laughs> so, or, or, or a particular kind of idea yeah, is embedded yeah. in that. Uh, so, so the the notion that we'll elaborate on a moment here of a kind of the value of what the confirmation hearings are doing, um, is there a public a moment of public accountability where the nominee has to affirm the current consensus? Um, and the, by that, I mean the deep consensus, not the contested cases. Um, and the reason I don't know how that would have played on those questions for Bork, Bork revealed to an extent after, uh, Bork revealed what that constitutional consensus was, which is why we can kind of track forward from him to nominees who affirm the set of, uh, of, of principal constitutional decisions that I just um, right. ran through right. here. Um, we don't know how long it would have taken for that um, consensus to be revealed. What Bork shows was that it existed, um, that that was what it was at that moment in time. So if he had not declined those cases, they hadn't really become the, these kind of foundational litmus test um, 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 principled cases yet at that point in time. Um, there, there, there surely were others though, right? I mean, he, uh, he I don't think he was one of the people who um, denied Lochner. That's come a little bit later, right? So the Lochner era for your your, your listeners was um, the, the Supreme Court in the pre-New Deal era and the early New Deal era when they were using a variety of tools to invalidate um, social uh, well and economic uh, regulations by both the state and the federal government. The Lochner cases have long been considered to be part of the anti-canon, the things that we reject as wrongly decided, and they are routine, had been routinely rejected. That might be shifting a little bit, but they had been routinely rejected by nominees. And, and I suspect Bork rejected those. He did. No, um, Bork, Bork definitely was against Lochner. He wrote about it all the time. I mean, yeah. So so, so, so he had his own. And he approved Brown, right? He did, he did approve Brown. Yeah. So, so the constitutional consensus kind of, there still was one that he was validating. It's just not the same one that was revealed to be what it existed after he, after he failed. So let's, seg- was- let's segue, because I, I want to save time at the end for Kagan yeah. when I'm going to rant. So um, let's segue. So your first book had, I think, one of the most original and wonderful theses. Whether it's right or not, I don't really care. I, I, I used to think you were 100% right. Now I'm not sure anymore, especially when Trump judges wouldn't wouldn't Trump non-Supreme Court judges wouldn't avow Brown. But but yeah. but talk about the thesis of your book. Why are confirmation hearings so important and what do they show the American people? Yeah. So so I think they're important um because well let me backtrack a bit. So so we have a very powerful Supreme Court. Um it is arguably the most powerful court in the world. History. Um, in world history. Because we have kind of a cluster 
uh, of things about it that other other systems have one or two of these, but they don't know all of them, right? We we have life tenured justices um, who um, now sit for decades, uh, and they are being asked to solve contemporary problems um, using 200 plus year language, um, and there is no um, legislative override possibility of any type. There's not in something like the Canadian notwithstanding clause where two consecutive parliaments with an election in between can, can change um, uh, a, a, the effect of a judicial opinion. We have none of that. Um, uh, or we have, I'm sorry, we have all of that. Lori, <laughs> so it's also, I'm sorry, but Richard Albert was saying last week, it's also virtually unamendable today and that makes a difference. And we have a virtually unamendable constitution, right? So, so that cluster, that 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 constellation of things, is is unique to our court. And it, it makes it not it a court. court. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> predictable. It, it took you forty minutes to get there. Um, so it's um, it's a very powerful court, and that has a very specific effect in our system that. Um, other courts don't obsess about things, or other countries don't obsess about originalism. They let judges be judges and decide things with the typical toolkit of judicial review. Um, we don't. Um, and the reason for that is this very, very powerful court in a system of democratic self-governments, governance makes us fear about judicial power. So we have this entire body of con law theory that develops these elaborate mechanisms to try to constrain judicial discretion. Um, right. And originalism, of course, is the one that your listeners are probably most familiar with. But as you, I am sure, have said on this podcast, it doesn't actually work very well. Right? Me? It's, you think it's, I would say that? It <laughs> has not, um, whether in theory or it, whether it has legs in theory or not, in practice, it, it doesn't act as much of a constraint on actual judges acting in the actual world. Um, so <laughs> I love the way you said that. Yeah, that means that, I'm very diplomatic. That means that, that 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 we we have this we live with this fear of unchecked judicial power. So I kind of started thinking about well, what does our system use to check judicial power? And the obvious answer is the confirmation process, right? Because um, it's it's baked into the constitutional cake. We have our 1787 founders gave us a system that puts justices through an overly, uh, a process that is ran by political actors. Um, the president and the Senate are political actors. They're elected officials. They have always been political actors. And that's how our appointments process works. So that's the moment um, of um, accountability. It's indirect as it should be for judges. Um, and it works on the court as a court, not um, once you're on the court, you, there's no kind of recourse, but for the court as a whole, a, a political appointments process, an appointment process that runs through the political branches when it's functioning well, will mean that the court's never going to get too far out of whack um, with the constitutional consensus that Americans you know, agree to be governed under, even though we're still fighting about lots of stuff. So here's the more direct answer to your question. Um, the best thing, the thing the confirmation process does that's important is not um, uh, uh, try to elicit answers from nominees about currently controversial issues, right? Nominees don't and shouldn't um, sit there and say, this is how I am going to decide an abortion case. Um, but what they should and do do is they say in public and under oath that for the issues that used to be legally contested, that used to, in most Supreme Court, 
there are no easy Supreme Court cases, right? Um, virtually any issue that comes to the Supreme Court is going to have legally salient arguments on both sides. So the, just, the, 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 the justices make an initial choice of which of those legally salient arguments they find most persuasive. Um, and then over time, you know, we kind of live with that or not, we push back against that or not. Um, but some consensus does form around core issues. Things that are in the canon um, are rightly decided. Things that are in the anti-canon are wrongly decided, according to a, a consensus of, a, of an era. Um, and the nominees sit up there and they say, yeah, I accept that. Those aren't my fights. I, I accept that that is the outcome, that, and I, I approve that, I affirm that, and I do that here in public and under oath. And I think that's really important because that gives a democratic moment of validity to, to constitutional change over time. I have so many questions in so little time. Um, so let's start, let's start with this. Scalia, and I've actually read his. Mm-hmm wouldn't answer if he thought Marbury was rightly decided. Um, <laughs> I, I'm glad I made you laugh. Um, I don't think he answered very much of anything. In fact, people don't remember that he was asked if he was an originalist and he basically shrugged. Uh -huh. He actually didn't. He actually, I don't believe he answered the question. What he said was, I'm not a living constitutionalist. And if anything, I'm closer to it. He did not say, like he used to, once he got on the court and he said for the next 40 years, the Constitution is dead, 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 and I'm an original. You know, he didn't do that at his confirmation hearing. So, so your thesis doesn't apply to Scalia because he didn't tell us anything, right? Yeah. I, no, I'm disagreeing with you. Okay. Um, not no, I agree okay. that it doesn't apply. So, of course, it applies to Scalia. Um, be, because um, we, my co-author Paul, Paul, I should mention you should because he's, he's great. Paul Collins from the University of Massachusetts. Yes. He's amazing. Yes. Um, and, and um, also a good friend of Judge Posner, I believe, or used to be. Yes. <laughs> what 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 we did? One of the papers that we did was we developed this um, responsiveness ratio, right? And what the responsiveness ratio is? It's just a, it, it's just a simple simple formula that takes the number of um, firm answers that a nominee gives, and a firm answer is. They, they cannot answer a question in a thousand ways. A firm answer is to say, yes, I, John Roberts, agree today that this is the right constitutional answer as was reached in this case, right? So a firm answer, um, there's, it's unequivocal. Um, so our responsiveness ratio takes the percentage because the um, length of the hearing varies, so, which is why we use percentages. The percentages of firm answers that a nominee gives and then subtracts the percentage of um, what we call privileged responses, where a nominee, ex um, you know, they give up waffling, they've been waffling for as long as they can, and they finally just say, I'm not going to answer. Right. right. So that's the responsiveness ratio. Um, and, you know, they, they, they're up and down over time. But uh, again, I mean, Scalia wasn't out of whack. Um, so he was answering some meaningful things. I'd have to go back and look at just what they were, you know, and not answering Marbury. He might not have believed Marbury was was settled law. Um, he sure came to believe it. He, he, yes. he was. He only he struck down like 150 hard. laws in his life. Yeah. He was a very, very active user yes. of judicial power. Yes. Um, I, think, I think that's unequivocally true. But I think, of course, this uh, um, uh, applied to him. So and, what? And, okay. Yeah. So what issues today? Are settled. Yeah. Brown is let's say let's say, yeah. let's say Brown is settled. Do you have a theory about the Trump judges? 
<laughs> I do have a theory about the Trump uh, the Trump judges. Um, if I, I'm going to follow your bad practice of referring to them collectively for a moment, <laughs> um, so, so there has been some refusal to say whether or not Brown was correctly decided, um, and, and uh, Gorsuch at his Supreme Court confirmation hearing kind of danced around that a little bit before affirming it. And some of the lower court judges have have just like declined to comment. Um, I do have a theory of that. I don't think they think Brown is wrongly decided. Um, I think what you see when you look at those transcripts is they are trying to avoid the questioning senators have gotten very good at saying, well, why would you answer that? But not this. Right. And of course, the answer is this is in the consensus and that isn't. Um, But but the, the nominees don't have a language to talk about that. Um, so, so the nominees are, are, are not answering the question about Brown because they see that as a trap yeah. um, that's going to be say, saying why this and why that. Uh, so I, I don't think that there is a, a brewing movement to overturn Brown. No, I agree. Um, I agree. I agree with that. That's a good answer. So what other issues um, besides, let's just say, judicial review in general, like the, the Marbury yeah. in general, what other yeah. issues are settled that are big that people care about? Yeah, um, I, th- I think a, a core right to privacy in the Constitution remains um, a, a core settled issue. Um, I think that the, um, and again, this is back to Bork, but no one today um, who wants to be on the Supreme Court would say the First Amendment only applies to political speech um, as opposed to other uh, multiple other types of uh, association and expression. Um, I think the, I actually think that the, the, fa- the um, position that the Second Amendment includes a personal right yeah. to bear arms, not just a <laughs> yes. right. Actually, it's also one of the things that the nominees um, uh, feel like they have to um, affirm as correct. And again, with all of these, there's lots of arguments about what the scope is, sure, right? Sure. About, um, and that could be also be one of the, the legacy of Brown, maybe newly kind of in contest now, um, which also could be kind of a reason for a little more waffling on that, um, as, as we're about to see with the affirmative action cases that are pending at the court. Right. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the Second Amendment is, is and it makes it a point that I want to emphasize, you know, it's not a closed set, right? The, the whole point here is that each era of Americans kind of muddles its way toward a, a constitutional consensus that, and it won't be the same one over time. And and the Second Amendment as, as including at least some type of personal right to bear arms outside of militia service is I think moved into that 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 canon now. Which is unbelievably tragic and sad. Um, sorry, little editorial comment. Um, we're taping this on a Thursday and on tomorrow morning I'm gonna be ranting about guns in, in New Orleans, so I had to say that. Um, all right, a couple more questions about all this. Um, so I want to ask you about Brett Kavanaugh. We didn't, and, and so in all my, I, I always do this disclaimer. You and I had a rough roadmap. We're about to leave the rough roadmap. I'm sorry I didn't, <laughs> I'd you to this in advance, but it happens. Um, so Brett Kavanaugh had a moment that I yelled about in the media. And some picked it up, like Bloomberg picked it up and a few others picked it up, where he said, he was asked about Griswold. And I'm assuming okay. it's your position. Any judge who says, I think Griswold should be overruled would probably, any Supreme Court nominee, if they really come out and said, no, I think it's wrongly decided. I think it should be overruled. Do they, they don't get confirmed today, right? Um, I, I think it would be a point of great contention. Okay. Did he say that? Yeah. No, what Kavanaugh said, and he was so freaking clever, it's such a clue to his personality. What he said was, I agree with Justice White's concurring opinion in Griswold. 
And so what we're talking about for the non-lawyers out there is Griswold is the first case to find a right to privacy, and it applies it to a Connecticut law that prohibited contraception. It was the only state in the country that prohibited contraception at the time. It was an outlier state. Uh, Justice Douglas writes a majority opinion and a plurality opinion or whatever it was, uh, talking about the first, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, 14th amendments, all this stuff. And the famous penumbras and emanations quote, which has been misused by everybody, but leave that aside. Um, and then in concurrence- to Protect the right of association, which doesn't textually exist in the yes. first amendment. Yes. It is a favorite of lots of folks these yes. days. That's where penumbras first showed up. Yes. White says, I don't agree with any of that, but the means, it's not a, he applies a rational basis test and says it's not, mm -hmm. it's not strict scrutiny. And he says, mm -hmm. stopping married people from using contraceptives will not, will not, is not reasonably related to the state's goal of deterring adultery, which is what they said they were doing to be, that's not what they were doing, but they claimed that's what mm -hmm. they were doing. All right. So when Kavanaugh says, I agree with White in, in, um, in Griswold, what he's saying is I'm going to vote to overturn Roe. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Why wasn't that a bigger story, Lori? I said, and I was the only person. There's some Harvard Yale folks who said it too. Why wasn't that a bigger story? Precisely because there were some Harvard and Yale folks who said it. And I, I want to be precise about what I mean by that. This is not bashing Harvard and Yale. Um, the, the value of the confirmation process that I'm talking about, and a lot of, a lot of law professors, especially kind of um, prestigious law professors, actually hate this about the process. This is a conversation pitched to the American people, and it should be. Um, and, and and Kavanaugh answered the question in a way that that secured for the 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 non elite non lawyerly listener um, that that um, he wasn't coming after constitutional privacy in all of its forms um, and that's enough Roe has never been a litmus test uh, of of this nature it's never been a it's definitely definitely not in a consensus decision. Um, so, so implicitly saying that he's going to overturn Roe does not um, put him outside of my um, my scenario here. Did you, oh. We should be talking to Americans about that. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it, this is a, the, the point is this is public. This is under oath. This is about people. Right. This is about how people understand what the court is doing. It's funny, Lori, because I'm very privileged to have to be um, friends with and was on uh, someone's radio show for a decade. It was on XM Radio, now has a podcast, who's actually very, his name is Pete Dominic, and he's very good at what he does. And he lets me answer questions by saying, I don't have a soundbite answer, so it's going to take me three to five minutes. Do I have three to five minutes? He'll say yes. I told that story on his podcast, on his show, I think, uh, at the time. Um, and his listeners, lay people, got it. Like they understood it and they were interested, mm -hmm. but I couldn't get media interested. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, but it's interesting because of what it says about Roe, not because of what it says about it. It was so sneaky. Oh. <laughs> I see. So, so it's the personality angle you were playing. But, 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 but Laura, he said, he said he had no opinion on Roe. That's what he yeah. said. Right. Other than it was well-settled precedent. But then yeah. he gives this clue that, you know, anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. I just, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to ask you in a very terrible roundabout verbiage way is this. Even when there's a big moment, like that's a big moment, right? No other Supreme Court justice nominee has ever said, well, I agree with White's concurrence, not the majority opinion in Griswold. That's a well thought out thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And no one cared. Makes me sad. I, I, yeah, I, I suspect um, it, it's... Uh, I'm going to give you, it's not a counterexample, but okay. it, it's context. Um, 
Justice Ginsburg came very close, very, very close to directly saying um, that she did support Roe. Right. Um, and, and, and and I think we actually even coded this as a firm answer for her because she talked about how it's essential to women's equality that they control their reproductive um, uh, life. Right. And, and and that also was not kind of the earth shattering moment um, that that uh, you're saying Kavanaugh's should be. And I think, you know, part of this is the politics of abortion, which is always a, uh, always has its own like um, its Fair. own gloss um, to what's happening. I think people are. People know where they stand on the issue and are largely exhausted by talking about yeah, it. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Um, so I have two more issues. That we, we're running out of time. I wish we had more time. I have two more issues. Um, I want to do the one I'm most interested in last. So my, I want to make sure we get this in. Your next book, okay. your forthcoming book. Um, and by the way, uh, your co-author, I got confused with Ron Collins, who was an old friend of Judge Posner. Not, I want to correct the record on that. Okay. Um, Supreme bias, gender and race in U.S. Supreme Court confirmation here. Mm-hmm. Boy, is there a lot of gender and race in Supreme Court confirmation hearings? I'm just, I just want like three minutes on the thesis, what that book is supposed to accomplish, what you're hoping for. Yeah. So, so Paul Collins, my co-author yes. and I, and my, my brilliant co-author here at UGA, Christy Boyd, um, yeah. joined us for this. And what we do is, again, kind of using the, using our data from all of these all of these. Um, uh, almost 100 years of hearings, what we look at is how the um, race and gender of the nominee influences the content and 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 how and the content of the hearings. Um, and this it's grounded in a, a very very large body of work that looks at things like how, of, of, about how women and people of color face different types of challenges in their professional lives. I mean, things the one everyone knows about is interruptions. There's been tons of work on how often um, women and people of color are interrupted. You know, there are stereotyped expectations about expertise and interests and behavior. So things like that. So we wanted to look at at um, the ways that nominee race and gender um, influence the hearings and whether or not those nominees um, ha- uh, kind of experienced a different type of hearing um, than, than their white or male counterparts. Um, and we used our data to explore that. And what we found um, was, was that they do. Um, and in, in some ways that are really, I think, very quite interesting. Um, uh, female nominees and nominees of color, especially female nominees, are interrupted by the senators more often. Um, and so we see that they have their professional expertise questioned more often and and they're subject to subject matter stereotyping. Um, things like women are expected to be more or uh, ask more questions about abortion. Um, black nominees are ask more questions about crime or, or civil rights. So you get things like, you know, um, you know, Justice Tom. Justice Thomas is actually a great example of this, right? Because he he talked a great I, I, he talked a great deal. I'm I'm I'm, about, I'm, I'm maintaining <laughs> about how 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 he was stereotyped um, by Democratic senators um, who had a set of expectations about how he should feel and believe about certain issues given his status as as a black male lawyer. Um, so, so we saw that these effects do happen. Um, nominees uh, of color and female nominees um, have this different type of experience. Um, and interestingly, um, partisanship doesn't explain it, right? So, so it mitigates it. So, so a Democratic senator talking to a nominee appointed, not named by a Democratic president, um, these effects are mitigated, which of course makes sense, right? Because a shared, a shared goal, um, sure reduces risk of stereotyping. Um, but it doesn't eliminate it. 
so, so, so a, a Justice Kagan is going to get more skepticism about her professional competence from Republican senators than a Justice Breyer. And a Justice Thomas is going to get more skepticism um, from Democratic senators about his positions on race or civil rights than is someone like Justice Alito. So, so partisans, partisan um, community can reduce this effect, but it doesn't eliminate it. Well, I, I, I read your first book because the hope is clear. I will read this book and I can't wait. And I think, and, and, and I will point people to, um, there is definitely data that shows this, this Supreme Court, uh, male justices interrupt the female justices more than vice versa. Although I think last year they got touchy about that. So they may be trying to get better, but there was some pretty alarming data about that too. All right. Well, that, yeah, that, that, it's really interesting how awareness of these issues and COVID, right? That, yes. that, that turned thing that Chief Justice Roberts instigated, um, there was a lot of kind of scuttlebutt that that was kind of about the interruptions data, right. that, that they, they they knew that body of work. So yeah. it's, it's it's fascinating. It's been fun to work on. Yeah. Um, I can't wait. It's great stuff, Lori. All right. So we have about 10 minutes left and okay. you're going to yell at me in about three. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of talking for a second and then you can yell at me. I think you wrote in your book or somewhere that Justice Kagan, I know these are small differences, but answered the least amount of questions of any nominee of the recent times. Is that right? That's what I think you said. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The, the least firm answer. She did not have the worst responsiveness ratio, right. but she had the, the lowest firm answer. Okay. She had the lowest firm answer response. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I want to jump out a window when I hear that. So I... Unlike you, I'm not going to fight about this now, but I think the confirmation process is a charade. And I don't, I don't, I think it might have used to serve the purposes that your book suggested. I'm not sure it still does. I think when your book was written, it was right. Now I'm not as sure as I was when it was written, just because of things outside your control that you couldn't possibly have anticipated. But here's what I want to say. I wrote a piece, I know you know about it, that, 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 that Kagan in 1990 something, 95 or six, wrote a law review article in, in Chicago Law, a book review actually, uh, in the Chicago Law Review, where she called the process a charade, and she a hopeless charade, and she explained what she meant by that, which is we don't get real answers, we don't get real questions. And the most interesting thing about her article is that she agrees with you. This is a time when we should educate the American people, and we are doing everything we can but educating the American people. It is a harshly written condemnation of the confirmation process. Yes. When Justice Kagan was nominated, she was not to swing vote, and it did not change the balance of power, and we all knew she was going to be confirmed, or someone like her was going to be confirmed. And I wrote a piece that said, as the former dean of Harvard Law School, she had the most credibility of anyone in my lifetime to get up in front of the Senate and say, listen, folks, I've thought about constitutional law for 30 years. I was a dean of law school. Um, I, have, I have opinions about abortion. I have opinions about affirmative action. I have opinions about the Second Amendment. I have never been a judge, and I don't know how I will decide these cases if I am a judge. And everything might change. But, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you I haven't have opinions about Roe and Casey and, and et cetera. And I'm going to give you my current opinion. No promises, no commitments. But as an educator, it would be silly for me to pretend, and this is not my line, this is Chuck Schumer's line, the minute before she was nominated, the minute she could have gone on to New York Times and given a full interview on every policy position. I mean, she was SG, so Sir Jen says, but she could have done that. And no one would have said anything. It would have been a great thing. She gets nominated, and all of a sudden, all those opinions are off limits. And that can't be right. Why can't they just say, this is how I feel today, but when I'm faced with a case with real facts, 
and real briefs and real attorneys arguing different sides, I might change my mind. Why can't they do that? So, firstly, yes. nothing you have said um, makes my book wrong. Okay. <laughs> because of course, I, I'm not saying your book is wrong, by the way. I'm not. I know. And in the time scale, we don't yeah. know yet if yeah. this is going to change. There, ha you, 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 it's it's like Supreme Court political accountability. It is indirect and on a different time frame. Um, so we don't know yet if this norm that that I describe or this practice I describe is is yeah. actually pivoted or if we're just in a little blip. Um, but to your point, uh, nothing it, nothing in what I see as valuable about the confirmation process says that anyone should be giving their position on currently contested issues, right? Everyone wants to talk about Rowan Casey at the confirmation hearings. I don't think that's I don't think that's the 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 value that they're adding isn't the conversation about Rowan Casey. It's the conversation about things that used to be controversial and are no longer. And therefore, we're giving this kind of validation to that constitutional change initially made by unaccounted judge, unaccountable judges justices is now being validated in this democratic platform. That's what I think is valuable about the process. That's not about talking about Roe. Um, so, so that. Secondly, though, I share your frustration. I remember when Kagan was named, I had read her her piece on this, and I thought, ooh, you know, so this is going to be exciting. Yes. She's actually going to give us some sort of defense. Um, not of answering everything about, you know, her current positions on contested issues, but a defense of, of, of a process that includes some sort of real genuine accountability. I think that would have been great. And I also was disappointed um, that, that she that she didn't do that. But I don't think it speaks much to 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 my theory of the book about what the actual value is. I think it can be an and not an or. I, I think your thesis is right. I, I, I thought I thought at the time. I still think it. I think there's some been some things since that need to be addressed in your thesis. But I think your thesis is right. I don't know why it has to be an or. I mean, why? Why? I mean, and, and as the, and my point was very specific in a moment in time. Was it was not a um, uh, a balance of power seat. She didn't actually not have a long paper record on most constitutional issues. Right. Um, as former dean of Harvard, she had a, some credibility that some others don't have. I mean, um, and it would have been such a great lesson. I think the constant, this is, this is Kagan, could have been. Um, I've read Roe um, and I've read Casey. And my yeah. views pretty much, I, mean, I think this is true, align with Casey mostly. Um, and I, I don't think there's an absolute right to terminate a pregnancy at every minute of every woman's life. I do think viability is the correct line. And when I have an actual case in front of me, I will do more thinking about it. But that's where I stand today. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. the American people would eat that up. Well, and it's not far from what Ginsburg did, right? right. Um, so, so there's really an, there's an interesting um, conversation in the Ginsburg. Trend. She gets cited a lot as standing for the proposition, yeah. the Ginsburg rule, um, that that where she said at one point, you know, no, what was it? No, no peaks, no previews, no forecasts. Yeah. Um, um, but what doesn't get cited is she also talked um, at length about how she understood the obligation of the senators um, to actually do their constitutional duty. Um, and their constitutional duty included understanding and voting in accordance with um, how the, the, a, a the constitutional consequences of a nomination. Yes. And, and she talked about kind of how for a, a nominee, you know, there, there's there's kind of a balance uh, of the obligation to in, uh, enable senators to do their constitutional duty and the obligation, which I think is real if overused, 
um, to not appear biased before future litigants. Um, I think that is that's a meaningful concern, as is the idea that you shouldn't be looking like you're making promises in exchange for your seats. Those are not real. Um, they can be overused, but still ha ha have a, a, a core, a nugget of a that it that is about a real concern. And Ginsburg actually talked really quite eloquently about about those dueling obligations. I think Kagan was in an even better spot to do that, and and I, I do believe she was asked about the article in the first ten minutes, and I after yeah. her speech, and I believe she yeah. said, "Yeah, I walked that back. I, you know, I was I was I was a crazy academic." Um, it, it is remarkable. It's remarkable to watch how the in, the insisters, insistence from the senators that nominees must answer their question turns on a dime depending <laughs> on who's nominated. Yes, if, that's, if, if, yeah. if, if you if you want a sense of the the um, uh, fluidity of of certain uh, principles yes. um, about separation of powers, read read a century's worth of confirmation here. I'm sure that's giving you an insight no one else on the planet has. One last th thank you uh, for, the, for this entire conversation. Um, one last thing. My goal in talking about Kagan and that issue, and I think it applies to all of them, is to demystify the court. You know, this is my, mm -hmm. my thing. Um, and I think the, there's, there's got to be a middle ground between full – I'm not saying they should make promises or commitments. That's not my position. But there could be a middle ground between – I've given thought to this complex issue and here are my thoughts today, knowing they could change. And no, I can't answer that because it could possibly come before me. I would like to think there's a rich middle ground in there that Ginsburg, I think, occupied, actually. And Kagan yeah. did a little bit on the broad yeah. philosophical issues, not anything. Yeah. You know. Am I wrong about that? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I think there's play in the joints. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think each I mean, the responsiveness ratio kind of shows how different nominees strike that balance a little bit differently. Um, and you're correct that Kagan was in a hot seat for, I mean, political scientists will tell you that, you know, the, the most contentious ones are when you have an opposing party Senate, um, the last term of a presidential uh, uh, term, the last year of a presidential term, and a swing seat. You know, Kagan didn't have any of that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, fair enough. But what is also true is that the court is not immune from the partisan temperature of the country. Um, and in a moment when we are experiencing um, extreme partisanship, you know, the court, they're, they're going to pull their punches a little bit more because, you know, it's, it's your seat to lose at a certain point. And, and when partisanship is hot, um, that seat's hotter. Yeah, I think that's right. Laurie, this has been awesome. I've learned, as always, I, as I always learn when I talk to you, a million different things that were great. I, I wasn't very articulate. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, when is this book supposed to come out, the next one? Um, it's coming out this fall from Stanford University Press. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to read it. And thank you for being on Supreme Myths. I, it was a joy. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Ray.